We're Kenyon and Takara Martin, faith-based marriage coaches, champions for healthy love, and lovers of pizza. And this is the Ask the Martins podcast, where we answer your single, married, or dating relationship questions with practical advice and research-based techniques. Have a relationship question you want answered? Well, send us a direct message on Facebook or Instagram at Ask the Martins or visit us at AskTheMartins.com. Now, let's get into today's episode. You may be familiar with my wife's and my weekly podcast or books that focus on relationship, relationship guidance, healing, and personal healing. As we've continued to coach through media and privately, we noticed in our DMs and social media that we were getting more and more questions and requests from men that were not afraid to say, what about me? As a result of that growing male voice, we created a series called Men Tell. The whole goal is to create a space for men to have conversations that feed us. My personal goal is to learn and grow by talking to men that I admire from different walks of life, and I'd like you to come along with me. I'm excited about this, and I hope you are too. Now, this first gentleman is someone my wife and I have followed for quite some time. Paul Scanlon comes to us straight out of the UK. He has trained and mentored thousands and thousands around the world for over 30 years. We like him because he tends to make the complex simple. Paul's primary focuses are on leadership, communication, and personal development for both men and women, or as he would say, humans. In our excitement, we both sat in on this one, but I'll tell you personally, as a man and as a husband, I find all three areas critical and vital to the position that I hold in my life. I was ready to dig in, and I hope you are too. Introducing world-renowned Paul Scanlon. You're you've been a leader for over 30 years. You've been married almost 50 years. So that shows shows us that that not only are you um experienced in a huge area or or in a corporate setting, but you're experienced in an intimate setting. And that means a lot to me because as a mentorship um, um trainer, as a person who teaches mentorship. I've needed mentoring a lot in my life. It took me a long time to get over my emotional immaturities. It took me a long time to understand uh, that leadership wasn't titles or education or degrees. It took me a long time to understand um, communication and it's not just talking at people (laughs) or presenting. Um, So, and it also took me a long time to learn how to flourish myself. I'm just a long time in such a way that I had to hit my rock bottom. With that being Mm -hmm. said, spending a lot of time in the last week, I've been steeped in information and, and, and really listening to you. And I, I just want to say that I honor and I appreciate you here. Um, your uniqueness, uh, your approach, uh, and your, um, authenticity. So I I thank you for your time personally. I, I definitely, and before we like just jump in into getting all into your business, um, <laughs> you know, it was one of the things that I, you know, originally introduced to my husband um, when here in the States, you know, we were going through all this kind of racial reckoning and <clears throat> to see you leading in those conversations and saying things <clears throat> that, that even black people 
couldn't say or were even being silenced from saying in the church. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, being yeah. that leader and that voice and that light, mm-hmm. um, I think has really been pivotal. Like, what do you think, you know, has been your driving force in leading those conversations, you know, in inclusion and diversity? Well, I, I'm not a late comer to this party, though some may feel I right. am, you know, when I, when I did that thing about interrupting a racist joke and that went viral on um, Facebook, over 6 million views now and so on and so on. But I had been involved, I suppose, in that space uh, 40 plus years. And the first time I encountered racism was in Africa, in Kenya. Mm. Uh, sorry, in, um, in Zambia, where we were working with some black pastors in the copper belt of Zambia. But they were um, on these white missionary stations. And when I went into that environment, it's then I first encountered the colonial version of racism because they were, you know, the ringing the bell for the black servant to come in when we were having dinner, myself and the white missionaries and all of that. And so when I spoke to the, about a thousand pastors and leaders uh, the following day, I just spontaneously thought I wanted to talk about, because it bothered me having this bell rang and someone coming in, it bothered me, but I didn't know why it bothered me. And I should have had the night to think it through a little bit. And so I knew in the 24 hours there, people were calling me Buana. Black people called me Buana. Buana is a a term of deference that black people were colonially taught to speak to white people. So it means boss man, the person we look up to, the person that's in charge, the hand that feeds us, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So the next day I spoke spontaneously about do not call me Buana. And then all hell broke loose. The white missionaries kicked me off the station, reported back home to my superiors of what I'd done, how ignorant I was, I should be educated. So I knew I'd stepped into something. So all of my life, I think I've had variations of that going on. Then when I moved our church outward to reach the inner city, because our church was white middle class, we're going to reach people different to us, including black people, people with different lifestyles. Then again, in the church, all hell broke loose. So again, Mm. I'm in that space again in my own local church. And the same thing in me, I think, that came up in me of resistance and uh, a need to address this and try and do it well, but this anger, frustration about it all. So when the George Floyd thing kicked off, you know, I knew it was part of my life ongoingly. And of course, we lost hundreds of people from the church through all of this and other things that they were resistant to, people coming up the gay or whatever people were reaching. So I knew that it had cost me a lot to Mm. keep this stand through my life. So when I stepped into that space after George Floyd's death, um, I've been doing it all of my life, but I think the heightened awareness made people see it a lot more than they normally would. But I've been doing it all my life kind of thing is why I wanted to say something about it. I wanted to sort of take advantage, I suppose, of the global awareness George Floyd's death brought because I knew it wouldn't last. Yeah. Amen. And again, not to, you know, take up too much of the time today, I definitely want to just, you know, jump right on in, um, in terms of just talking about, you know, people that we look up to, you know, icons or, or what have you that we have grown to love. Um, a lot of them we see have had these moments, these pivotal breaking points that have, you know, either broken them down and like cast them mm. aside or it's built them up. Right. Um, 
would you say you had one of those moments that kind of, you know, propelled you forward that if we look back and say like this place here is kind of where it began? Um, and if so, what, what was that moment? I think I've had a few of those. I think most people have had a number of those and it's been a, a progression and a process rather than perhaps a Damascus Road type event. And I, I know people mm. have those too. Mm. I've never had those. I have had a lot of miniature versions of awakenings. I think the primary one in the last 20 years for me was when I stepped away from pastoring. Um, all of my um, pivotal life-changing um, situations that you're referring to, I think have been to do with identity issues. Mm. That is that is that the evolving version of me has clashed with the non-involving version, the non-evolving version of what I was involved in. So one of the reasons I stepped away from pastoring, you know, 10, 11 years ago in about 2010, 11, was that I became aware that I was changing faster than the church was changing. Mm. And the gap between my personal upgrades that were coming so quick in my personal reinventions and my personal evolving, the gap between the rapid personal reinventions I was going through um, and the church's slow keeping up with that became a tension. Um, and I managed that tension for a few years, but I got weary of managing it and didn't want to keep managing it when someone else could step in who perhaps wouldn't have that same tension as me. And I think, by the way, a lot of leaders generally now, but especially in the church world, are exactly dealing with what I just articulated, but don't have words for it. Mm -hmm. When the senior leadership um, are evolving into a space and evolving into an identity, they don't know how then to come back from that to keep connecting with the church in a way the church feel comfortable with. So I think my main points of, of primarily shifting in life to answer you to Caro, were to do with that, were to do with identity shifts that I had to make. Um, do I go with this version of me? Um, I'm not really sure what that is or where that's going to lead. Or do I stay with the security of the identity of me I do know and they all know, because that would be safer and less turbulent than pursuing this sense in me, and often that's all it is, of another version of me is beckoning to me to wake up to it and to embrace it. And that transitional space is quite difficult. But in that space is where I've done most of my primary changing and fundamental uh, turnarounds in my life. And I've had several of those. And that would be a big one that I had pastoring about 10 years ago. And that's one of the reasons why I stepped away from pastoring. Excellent. And that turbulent space, that 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 space mm. of transition, that space of mm. uh, of change, and on a more intimate level, especially as a as a man, that turbulent space can challenge us in a sense that we can come across failures. We can come across come across places where we might find ourselves incapable or feeling incapable, uh, or 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 looking at the circumstance and and feeling less of a man or less of a leader in that circumstance. How does a man find himself in that turbulence, possibly even failure, 
and bounce back out of that without losing his 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 sense of masculinity, his sense of manness, his sense of leadership. Yeah, I think, uh, Kenyon, I think there are a lot of words that you're using in that question that I think we all have to take apart like failure. Mm. Um, I don't think what you're describing is a male problem. I think it's a human problem. Women also struggle with the exact same thing. It may not be a masculinity issue, but it is an identity issue just mm. for women as it is for men, that they will be perceived in some way as a failure too, to um, not handle a certain thing well. And all of it is not to do with masculine or feminine, though I know there's unique issues we face as you are referring to, but I think it's a problem of the human ego. Mm. And, when, and when we are over attached to our egoic identity, what that does for us is it keeps us trapped in a certain pattern of behavior and responses and patterns that have become our go-to mode of living. So if I'm gonna step away from my egoic construction of who I am and be vulnerable um, or be transparent or be weak, then our ego is trained from birth to shout at us, don't do that. It's my job to make sure that you're not taken advantage of, that you're not misunderstood, that you are not rejected. So the ego works double time in those moments where we want to do and say something to keep us intact. And what happens is a lot of us try to navigate what would be seen as a failure in a way that makes it not look like that, which is the ego's attempt to salvage who you've become to that stage in your life. And I think, as I said, it's a human problem um, Kenyon, than it is, I think, a male or female problem, but I know it, though I know it has nuances in the way that you're speaking about. And I think we have to reframe the use of the word failure or success or, or um, what is doing well, what isn't doing well, what is winning, what is losing. I know exactly what, where you're coming from in that and what you mean, but I think in, you know, in the last 20 years, I've done a lot of work in trying to deconstruct and dismantle those go-to words that we use mm-hmm. that I'm not sure, I'm not sure we all know what we're talking about, like racism. When I stepped into the space on racism, um, following George Floyd's murder, um, I knew that when I mentioned racism or discrimination or prejudice, I knew it doesn't mean the same to everybody. So when I got trolled and negative comments by white people, I knew that they weren't on the same page as me, even with the words I was using. So definition of terms becomes important, I think. Absolutely. So um, j- just kind of a little follow up there, because that was powerful in the, in the idea of the egoic thing that we have to we have to let go of. Mm. Um, and, and and so I I would suspect that our ego thrives on measurements of those terms. Right. Um, and we need to get out of that measurement, that personal measurement, because that right. really, once we move out of that way, um, we sap the ego of its strength mm-hmm. without it. Yeah. And, and the thing is, ego is not ego is not good or bad. Every human has an ego, including Jesus. Everybody has an ego. But but the thing about the ego is it's not good or bad. 
but it doesn't default to good without management. Amen. Oh, wow. So, so you have to manage it. If you don't manage your ego, it will manage you and control you all of your life. So part of my awakening in this last 20 years has been awakening to the awareness of my ego and how it has been a false construct in me and in all of us from birth. And of course, when you become a Christian, and I became a Christian and gave my life to Christ at 15, um, I realized that, and this is the thing to say to believers, that just because you're born again doesn't mean your ego is taken care of. Mm. Um, and so what happens if we're not aware of that, that we don't teach that in our churches, which is one of the shifts I made in teaching things that I felt would help us become better humans rather than just better Christians, because I realized in my church, when I brought when I brought people into our church, as we said earlier, they were a different color to us, different lifestyle to us, different background to us, different social group to us, and so on and so on. And I had so much resistance in the church, so much negativity. Um, I realized that we, as a church, had our own corporate egoic identity. And so what happens that when you when you be, when you get involved in religious structures and systems. That is another layer of ego that comes on you. And, and many structures offer that, but the church also has our own version. So the deconstruction, the deconstruction of these multiple layers of ego, the longer you live and the more tribes and groups you get involved with, the more layering the ego becomes. And so becoming aware of it 20 years ago of mine and our churches and religions was a lot of work I, I was doing in the first 10 years of that 20 I mentioned when I woke up in about late 90s, early 2000s to this area. So it's not good or bad, but the ego definitely is not your amigo. It needs training. Amen. <laughs> oh amigo. my gosh. Put that on a t-shirt. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I know speaking on identity, you talk a lot about it. And, and one of the things that Kenyon and I, as you know, builders of people relationship relationship coaches, coaches. Um, building a re intimate relationship yeah we're very big on helping people unlearn um the you know mm -hmm. toxic mentalities and, and things like that and a lot of stuff we run up against um in relationships are the fact that you know we tend to marry our toxic past and we don't know how to break free from that and so i heard mm -hmm. you in a sermon talk about how i'm going to read it because i do not want to screw this up um mm -hmm. you said um how what we forge from our experiences becomes our identity. Mm. Um, in relationships as women, a lot of times we tend to get in relationship with men who have become, you know, made an identity out of their negative experience or their bad upbringings. And we try to rescue them. Or layers of ego. Or layers of ego. Mm. And we try to really love them out of that and, and rescue them out of that. And I know with daughters, I hope you didn't go through this, but, you know, as, as a daughter myself, I did have to unlearn the idea that I could rescue a man or rescue anyone really out of this mindset, out of that identity. Why is it so hard for us to, um, unmarry the identity that we've attached ourselves to from our experiences. And then, you know, in, in your experience, you know, for the women that are listening that think they can do this, why are we never ever going to be able to love someone out of that, if you will? Mark your calendar for Wednesday, not just any Wednesday, every Wednesday. Every Wednesday is an Ask the Martins Wednesday live at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard exclusively on YouTube. 
Takara and I answer your relationship questions and concerns live in a rapid fire format. Ask a question, participate in the live chat, or just listen in. Either way, you will not be disappointed. To find us, go to youtube.com forward slash Ask the Martins, or just open your YouTube app and search Ask the Martins. Hey, and don't forget, hit the subscribe and the bell so that you don't miss us. It's an Ask the Martins Wednesday, every Wednesday, live, only on YouTube. Well, again, I think, um, Takara, it is a human issue. I know we're speaking because of your guys calling and primary yeah. strength into sure, sure. intimate relationships. I get that. And of course, it shows up there hugely. But again, um, and I say this because one of the things that really helped me be a better leader, uh, especially in the church world, was that, that, uh, that so many problems I was helping people with in counseling and in growing people and building people and discipling people in the church, so many problems were framed as Christian problems. There is no such thing yeah. really as a Christian problem. Mm. There's only human problems. You may be a Christian, but someone that's not a Christian has the same problem as you. The difference is when you're a Christian, that it has layerings to it, and it has conspiracy theories attached to it, and it has certain paradigms attached to it that make you think it is unique to you because you're a Christian. But I have never in 32 years of pastoring, really, I don't think, dealt with any problem that wasn't to me just part of the human condition. And one of the big shifts I made in the late 90s um, that was epiphanal for me was I stopped trying to grow and teach and disciple Christians. And I started just to teach and grow humans. Because when the poor came in and black people came in and people different to us came in, I realized by the reaction of the church to them, the negative reaction, that we had, I had built a church 20 plus years in of good Christians that were bad humans. Mm. Because they, gotcha. they had no humanity to extend to these people different to them and their Christianity made them do this. So I think what you're describing, um, Takara, is a human problem. And I think that is, there, are, there are as many men trying to rescue women as there are women trying to rescue men. Humans try to rescue each other mm. <laughs> from things that I feel I love you too much to let you stay stuck that way. I think I can help you. Why aren't you letting me help you? Mm-hmm. Why do you keep defaulting back to this thing? And I think, yes, I think women and boys from birth, of course, are taught, are taught very different about yeah. nurture and love. So I get, I get that women have, I get that women can from birth and nurture be taught to rescue and to nurture and to love and to go above and beyond. Um, men can compartmentalize and box it in and say, well, you know, here's the prescription, take it and deal with it, figure it out. Um, but of course, it's impossible to rescue someone from something that they don't decide themselves to step to step away from. Mm. You know, if you're rescued from something that wasn't your idea, ultimately, you're going to default back to it. So it has to become ultimately your idea. No change lasts if it's a borrowed idea. And if it's borrowed, you have to stay in touch with the energy that you borrowed it from mm. to keep it. So I know what you mean by that. I think too, trauma, as you guys know, 
and our listeners and viewers um, is very complex. And a lot of people in our adult life, we do find comfort in the trauma we know more than the freedom that we don't know. And I've taught, you know, quite a bit from, you know, to put it in uh, biblical terms, from the experience of the Israelites leaving Egypt, that when Moses said to Pharaoh, let my people go, that was actually never going to be the problem. The problem wasn't would Pharaoh let them go, but would they let Pharaoh go? Because they had formed a Stockholm syndrome with mm -hmm. Pharaoh and the system that they had been raised in generationally. And I think we form Stockholm syndromes with our trauma. And we find some, some sense of comfort and orientation and certainty and stability, even in what's not working. And I think to understand that is to know why some people are reluctant to let go of the familiarity of trauma, even though they know it's better to be without it. And that's why love and care and non-judgmentalism in terms of the energy and atmosphere and love can, can, can invite people to step away because something better is available to you. Oh, but it's wow. a process. Wow. Wow. Okay. So <laughs> what I'm learning right now is we have to, in order to function, even though we have men and women nuances in order to function in that we have to remove these partitions and start thinking of thinking as humans. If we remove these partitions and start thinking as humans, we can actually begin to behave as humans one to another without the things that separate us. That that right there is sticking to me. And then the second part of that is now that we're able to remove those partitions to start making choices to get out of what we become comfortable in. Right. So with that being the case, mm. making that choice, getting vulnerable, how do we get vulnerable, men or women, um, mm. as humans, how do we get vulnerable enough to not feel like we're weak, not to not to to not to to overcome our branding since we're in that <laughs> and since we're in that area. Right, right, right. How do we get vulnerable enough to receive the help that we need and to forget or to get discomforted by what we've become comfortable in? Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, well, again, you know what I'm gonna do now? I'm gonna I'm gonna ask us to think about. Um, what does the word vulnerable mean? Yeah, <laughs> that's good. Yes. Yeah. I, I think, I think, again, I say that because I think the term vulnerable has been over-feminized. So it scares men. Yes. That's good. And, and when we, and when, uh, you know, I don't know if you ever read the book, Why Men Hate Going to Church by David Murrow. No. No, but we will get that. <laughs> it's a great book. Why Men Hate Going to Church by David, I read it years ago, probably 20 years ago. And what Morrow says in the book is that men hate going to church. One of the reasons is because the church is primarily a feminine environment. And historically, that has been true of the church. And I think it's still true now, primarily. I think it's changing slowly. But, but in terms of the energy yeah. mm -hmm. um, and the values and the language and the behavior and the body language, um, I, think, um, I think I agree with that still. And so what men want to do is men want to be in an environment that sort of recognizes and ratifies and dignifies their masculinity. 
That's why a man would rather play golf badly on Sunday than go with his wife to church. And she doesn't get that and she can't explain that to him or him to her, but it's a, it's a divisive issue. And it's not that he doesn't think they're nice people or it's a good, you know, it's a good environment and he may get a bit out of it, but he just constantly feels too vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And when he's and, and when he's asked to go to a church service um, uh, and sing songs about kissing Jesus <laughs> or about or about being in his um, you know everlasting arms or about being held or embraced or carried, and these are the lyrics of the songs, very often written by women worship leaders or men that are very in touch with their feminine side, which is a good thing too. Guys find those those words difficult. Now, if a guy finds those words difficult to sing and participate in, does that mean he's not vulnerable? No. It does mean he's not vulnerable if you define vulnerability as emotional sensitivity uh. or being soft or being open. And I think that's what I mean by if the word vulnerable means to be emotionally soft or open, then a guy's going to think, well, I'm never going to be that then. I'm always going to be the non-vulnerable guy. So I think we have to, again, um, Kenyon, redefine what vulnerable means. And um, I don't know if you know Brene Brown. Of course, yes. yes. She's done a lot of work in this area of vulnerability. And I think it's very healthy balance she has. And she talks about vulnerability is about showing up and being seen with no control over what will happen next. Mm. You know, that to me is a better definition of vulnerable than perhaps what people think we mean when we mention it in regard to men. So my version of vulnerability now at nearly 64, having been around, of course, raised women all my life, pastored a church and had, you know, um, you know, female staff. And by the way, now uh, 67, 68% of my social media followers are women. Right. Of the 100,000 plus followers I have on social media. So I think I've figured something out about healthy vulnerability that women feel comfortable around with the way I come across. Because my version of vulnerability is much more to do with um, authenticity, being yourself and not apologizing for it. It's to do with empathy and showing interest in someone else's life. It's to do with not being threatened by people different to you. It's to do with um, having a sense of self-determination and confidence and independence and not caring what someone else thinks about that. It's about being comfortable in your own skin. Um, it's about being non-judgmental, about living a curious life, being a teachable person. All of that to me is being vulnerable as a human. Mm-hmm. And I would start there because that, that opens the gate wide for a lot more people to be vulnerable than our narrow definition of it's to do with being emotionally sensitive um, and soft. And it may include that too, but I think that's a very feminine definition of vulnerability that men can't relate to, but men can relate to, um, you know, being their authentic selves, being teachable, being open, being a listener. In, in sign language, and I'll finish on this, in sign language is interesting. In sign language, there's two primary ways to sign vulnerability. And I know sign language is different around the world, but one of them is this. I'm trying to show you that. Mm-hmm. Oh, 
all this, which means to buckle at the knees. Mm. Wow. Another one is this. To open up your heart. Which means to be open-hearted. And I think this is wrong. And that's what I mean about the word vulnerability. It's like you're buckling at, you're buckling at the knees so someone feels yeah. they're losing something. Someone feels that they are vulnerable in a way they don't want to be. But this is much more realistic. But this doesn't mean, I think, what I think has been over-feminized in the way I've tried to say earlier. This means everything I just listed above, I think. Hey, wow. That's good. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> That's so good. Okay. So vulnerability, being seen, mm. and having no control over what happens when you're mm. open-hearted. Mm. Yeah. That's powerful. In mm. that moment, and, and this is, I think, if I'm to be honest, this this really helps me. I'm I'm just, I'm a note taker. I'm a I'm just I'm an introversion and not and I just suck in information. So I understand yeah. the introvert part of it, and sure. it kind of throws me off a little bit because I know we have a, an agenda. But the idea of that right there, it, it makes me just want to sit and water that. Um, yeah, yeah. And I don't want to take up too much because I know you have all kinds of programs to water that. But with that being said, moving on to mentorship moving mm -hmm. on to mm -hmm. being mentored even mm -hmm. on to that idea that okay i am going i want to be seen i want to actually be seen by someone mm -hmm. that i have no control over who i'm right. opening my heart to them and allowing them to see into me and to guide me in that way uh, that's how i kind of see mentorship mm -hmm. forming um but you being the just a regular resident expert on mentorship, how should we see mentorship? What is mentorship? And um, yeah, we'll start right there. How should we see mentorship and what is it in that context? I think mentorship, um, Kenyon, is strategic guidance. Let me just put that out there. I think it's choosing a strategic guiding voice and influence in your life at a certain point in your life for a long or short time. I think it's that, I think the effect good mentoring should have on you is that is it is strategically guiding you towards a better version of yourself mm. it is introducing you to that version of yourself because mentoring and coaching those words get used interchangeably and they're different coaching is to do with what you do mentoring is to do with who you are so coaching is to do with doing mentoring is to do with being and I've moved, I, I have always gravitated to mentoring out of my conviction that if you get better through mentoring, what you do will get better automatically kind of thing or to a large degree. Because as you know, many people who only have coaching get stuck because of something in themselves. Mm -hmm. And you get these, you know, you get these sports stars or, you know, high performers that are brilliant in what they do because they have the coaching, but then they're a failure in that internal world. Yeah. So I think I think these two should always go together, by the way. But I think a lot of people who have lots of coaching, I can clearly see you now need some mentoring because this aspect of your makeup as a person is now affecting your performance on the basketball court, on the football field or whatever. And coaching won't touch that. So I think it's strategic guidance, um, Kenyon, I would broadly say, 
is how I view mentorship. It is finding, and that's not easy either. It is finding the right voice that's a good match for both who you are and who you think you're becoming. And that's not always easy to figure that out, which is why I entered the mentoring space and years ago, you know, they say, don't they, that when the student's ready, the teacher appears. So -hmm. what I thought I would do in that equation is that I would just appear as a teacher on social media and create a program. Uh, You know, I have a a mentorship group that's global and I do one-on-one mentoring. I thought I'd just create that. And I thought I'll be the teacher that appears. And then if anybody's ready and I'm a good match for them, then we can find each other. Amen. That is awesome. That is awesome. Now, um, just kind of just digging in what I got from you, as Mm. far as mentorship is concerned, um, strategic guidance towards a better version. Mm. Uh, So it's not what I'm doing. It's who I'm being. And with that being the case, um, we should look at mentor as a mentor as someone who finds value in me. Right. Because you have to find value into someone in order to guide them to their better version. Uh, and, and to me, that's powerful. And, and I know that that is your space. You, you help people find value in themselves um, in order to uh, be leaders and to leave a legacy. Um, yeah. How would I, or Takara, or any human, <laughs> because I, I, I want to stay right there. Um, that's a lesson learned. Um, how would we see that we need mentors strategically in the area that who may see more value in us where we may want to seek, um, seek to be better? Because in order... To, to seek to be better, it presupposes that we see where we're not better. The world has never been more prosperous, educated, or connected. Our advances in technology and medicine are unparalleled. And yet, despite that, we have never been sicker, lonelier, nor more depressed and suicidal. Why? Because even though there are over 7 billion people on this planet, most of us are living outside in. We are more conscious of the physical and material world than we are of the world within. We are internally disconnected. And you know what they say, when you don't go within, you go without. Takara and I are privileged to partner with Paul Scanlon in affording you the opportunity to get reconnected, to go within so that you don't have to go without. This world-renowned mentor, leadership, and communications expert introduces to us his latest masterful training, The Prosperity of the Soul. This is a three-hour online course that is here to invest into the depths of you. Through this exclusive partnership, only our listeners can access Paul Scanlon's training for 70% off. Yeah, 70%. We're grateful that he is sharing this opportunity with us and our listeners. So don't delay. Go to www.paulscanlon.com forward slash the Martins to get access to this masterclass designed for the healthy soul. That's www.paulscanlon.com forward slash the Martins or check for the link in the description. Go and get a deposit into yourself that will last a lifetime.
And then how do we uh, encourage ourselves to 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 be ready so a teacher like you appears for us? Great question, Kenyon. Again, thank you. I think um, I think most people come for uh, personal mentoring with me, um, and this has been common in my life too, when they have a sense of feeling stuck. So they feel they're stuck for whatever reason, they can articulate their sense of being stuck. A lot of people that, that want mentoring um, know that they're stuck, are not really sure how they got stuck or the nature of it or how to get unstuck. The gift of this strategic voice is that a great mentor um, will be able to interpret your stuckness, mm. give language to it, and present several options of how to get unstuck. And I certainly feel by this age and stage of life, I have become a bit of a Jedi in getting people unstuck because I've been so stuck in my life and I had no help. So while I was down there in my stuckness with no help, I thought I need to figure some stuff out so that when I get back up from this, maybe there's some familiarity that I could pass on to others. So all of my stuck seasons of life, I figured out are again, common to all humans. And I need to find a way to explain that to this particular human I'm helping now. So most people come to a need for mentoring out of some sense of impasse um, or stuckness in their lives. And there's nothing wrong with that. We all get stuck. Nothing wrong with being stuck. But if, if you don't want to stay stuck, you might need some best spoke specific help. Now, finding that voice that can help you, as I said earlier, can be quite tricky because there's so much out there that's on offer. And for you to be vulnerable, going back to vulnerability, because mentoring requires vulnerability by the mentor and the mentee, to be vulnerable and to talk about your sense of stuckness and to be open to whatever comes next, because you can't control the outcome or what the mentor's going to say, um, is, is scary, it's vulnerable. So for me to say to you, have you thought about this? And the this I mentioned is a scary thought to you. That's why you got to be vulnerable. But if that scary thought is in the neighborhood of what could get you unstuck, my job is to say that. And the gift of a mentor is, I suppose, that we're neutral, have no skin in the game. We're not your family, your friends, your spouse, your church family, your pastor. That's why a lot of people, as you know, um, would rather have a consultant come into the business or go to a therapist because it feels a little bit safer than with someone that you know has an agenda, has a history with you. Honestly, it reminds me of a sermon you did on being mm. stuck at Bethesda. Is, right, that, is, that, is that right? Is yeah, that right? That's right. Being yeah. stuck. Stepping at out, stepping out of stuck. Yeah. Stepping yes. out of stuck. Yeah. Man, I'm sorry. I, I stumble because um I'm just I'm a student. I'm I'm just a mm. I'm a natural student. And just receiving that right there, the idea that we have to be encouraged. It's okay to be stuck but understand that we are stuck and to find someone who's strategically um, of who's avail available and strategically capable of getting us unstuck that, mm. that right there. Okay. Okay. I know we have this. Yes, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah, because as you know, from that um, uh, message, Kenyon, that the guy's stuckness was clearly not physical. So when Jesus said to him, do you want to get well? It is a ridiculous question to ask a man who's been trying to do that for decades. Yeah. So clearly, 
so clearly the obvious question tells you something not obvious is going on. And the not obvious thing was that his stuckness was to do with his, his Stockholm syndrome attachment to Bethesda. And so his miracle was not at Bethesda. His miracle was actually getting away from that place. And the miracle was the same for the rest of them. They all should have not been there in the first place. But of course, desperate people will do whatever they can to get a breakthrough. I understand that. I've been there too. So no judgment. And I don't think Jesus was. He was simply saying, there could be other layers to your stuckness that I'm exploring with the question, do you want to get well? And of course, the guy didn't say yes, which proved the point. Right. Right. He kind of said, you don't understand, Jesus. Let, you know, you're new around here. Let me tell you the system here. And he, he just didn't, which tells you why Jesus asked him this question. And that's the gift of a mentor. A mentor will ask you this ridiculous question to open something up that you're not seeing that he or she can see effortlessly. Um, I, I, and I know it's a human issue, hmm. um, but I find myself as a husband sometimes, and to be honest hmm. with you, like we had an argument a little bit earlier, <laughs> Not mm-hmm. today or last week. And we got over it. It was no big thing. I mean, we, 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 we coaching that we live in that, right. We try yeah. to live it, we preach, but yeah. the idea that I can get stuck on my ego, egocentricity, that I can get mm. stuck there, that mm. my ego is my Bethesda mm. and I need um, that word, just a strategic question that says, mm. what well, do you mm. want to solve this? Do you, uh, I don't want to, I want to ask a question here. I know I do, but (laughs) it's coming. It's coming. I'm I'm feeling like the question isn't about solving because solving is Mm. egocentric. It's Mm. about whether I do, I want to continue to be a husband through this. How do we deal with that stuckness in intimate places? I guess that's where I'm getting to, um, where I can actually stop, get unstuck on me and be delivered to us. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think, again, all of that entails a healthy version of vulnerability, you know, in the husband and the wife or the friendship, the partnership, whatever the alliance is, it requires a healthy degree of vulnerability, again, which all humans struggle with. It's more unique, as you guys know, in a marriage situation. But I think I think the gift of, of asking um, strategic, well-thought-through, um, non-agendered, non-judgmental questions is a beautiful way to deconstruct what we thought the problem was to find out, actually, that's not the problem. Because, you know, a lot of us have spent, I just, you know, did an online course that I put out recently called um, The Solution Mindset. And part of that teaching is that um, often we are battling a symptom of the problem, mm-hmm. but we think it's the problem. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, modern medicine only treats symptoms primarily, and you're left with the problem. We're now realizing, you know, eventually that that's not working, and we're moving to alternative approaches because um, we know the, the the symptoms treatment is not working, but it's keeping the pharmaceuticals rich, and they have a lot of vested interest in us not figuring stuff out for ourselves. Because if you figure it out yourselves, you're not going to need antidepressants, perhaps or you're not going to need this or that medication, and I'm nothing against medication. So I think it needs strategic questioning um, to often figure out what is the problem, i.e., <coughs> do you want to get well? Or the first question God ever asked, Adam, where are you? It's not because God mm. couldn't find him. It's because Adam, Adam didn't know where he was. He was lost in himself, and his ego woke up after the fall 
and he's now protecting this identity he has, and he's protecting himself from God and from Eve, and he started to blame, which is all the awakening of the ego and it's its behavior. That's its job. So I think it's that. I think it's that gentle but strategic questioning, which is why a lot of couples, as you know, find help by an outsider, a therapist, a counselor, that can easily see the wood from the trees when we often can't because we're too close. Thank you for listening to the Ask the Martins podcast, recorded live on social media and distributed to iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and Audible. Now, we can't grow without you, so help spread the love. Wherever you found us, rate, like, share, and leave a review. We are grateful to you and appreciate you in advance. Do you have a question for us? Then visit askthemartins.com. Ask us your question or ask for a friend. Once again, thank you for tuning in to Ask the Martins podcast. We hope you enjoyed the program.